we have been considering the question, what do we know about the truthfulness of God from the Bible? In connection with this question, we have seen that many objections are raised against the exact statements of the Bible as to its truthfulness and its consistency. An eighth objection was gathered around three statements that are claimed to be asserted in the Bible. First of all, that the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ was a literal and exact payment for the sins of men. Then the second proposition which grows out of the scripture and out of our observation is that all men are not being saved. In fact, the great majority of men do not appear to embrace the wonderful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the third proposition, we see from the Bible that the atonement of Christ was made for all men in the same sense. And thus, these three propositions are brought into conflict with one another and obviously cannot all be true. From our consideration of the Bible, we have seen that the Lord Jesus Christ died for all men in the same sense, and the strongest terms are used in connection with this statement. And this is the very essence of the glorious gospel of Christ, the fact that it is not partial in any sense, but was made out of the great heart of God's love for the sins of the whole world. And thus, in the first John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we continue this reading. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Here we have the most profound word used in connection with the atonement of Christ, the word propitiation. And we see from this verse that the Lord Jesus Christ, by his death, was the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. And we have no limitation in this glorious statement. This is what we would expect from this statement often occurring in the Bible that God is no respect of persons. And we'll just remind ourselves of one statement in the second chapter of Romans, verse 11. For there is no respect of persons with God. Since this is declared to be so, and who shall challenge it, we would expect that the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ would be made for all men in the identical same sense, without any reservations or qualifications. And so in Isaiah, we have illustrated the fact that God is inviting all men to be saved and to freely partake of his wonderful salvation. Now certainly, he could not do so if the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ was not made for all men, then of course he would be inviting sinners to partake of something which didn't exist for them. 
And so, in the 45th chapter of Isaiah, verse 22, we read this wonderful invitation. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Certainly God could not invite and implore all to turn away from sin and be forgiven freely by His loving grace through the atoning sacrifice of Christ by faith if a salvation was not provided for all. God would have a limited thought in His mind as He expressed a universal invitation to all men, and certainly this would be an inconsistency. But since this is unthinkable, the atonement must have been made for all men in the same sense without any partiality could be concluded from the fact that God invites all to be saved and partake of His loving mercy and grace. Uh, in the 23rd chapter of Matthew and verse 37, we have this tender expression from the lips of our blessed Lord, which was indeed a sorrowful expression. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them, which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Here is the lament on the part of the Son of God, that men are so reluctant to partake of the bountiful mercies of God. But certainly these mercies must have been provided for all men, otherwise the Lord Jesus could not lament the fact that all did not come. He certainly could not lament the fact that all did not come and partake of salvation if salvation was not provided for all. This must be very obvious to everyone. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, we read the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ in one of the records preserved to us. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Certainly, this was a clear implication that there was no secret nature to the blessed atonement that he had accomplished. Certainly, if the Lord Jesus was to send forth his servants to invite all to come, there must have been a salvation provided for all. Then we come to this great invitation from the heart of God appearing in the third chapter of Revelation, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The eye refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. So the Lord Jesus is pictured as appealing at the heart's door of all men. And certainly he could not do this if his blessed sacrifice had not been made for all men without any limitations. What a glorious thing to see established from the Word of God and from the New Testament in particular. It thrills the hearts of those who are seeking to serve the Lord Jesus to know that they have this great impartial message to present to all men. And so in the second proposition, we establish this fact. But in spite of the fact that a way of forgiveness has been provided for all men by the universal atonement of Christ, 
still only a comparatively small minority of human beings are availing themselves of God's wonderful salvation. This is the astonishment of the ages, is it not? and must be an astonishment to God also. Man has every evidence of God's greatness and goodness. How can anyone intelligently say that man is the loser when he partakes of the mercy and forgiveness of God in the forsaking of his selfishness of sin, and has this wonderful living faith in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins? Loser? by having the privilege of being in fellowship with the great and loving God? Astonishing! But just such is our observation, and just such is the testimony of the Bible. Let us consider a few instances. In Genesis chapters 4 and 5, it appears that from the very beginning of the human race, the great majority refused to turn from sin and be reconciled to their loving Creator. Abel, Seth, and Enoch stand out from the mass of men. In the sixth chapter of Genesis, the first eight verses, we notice that before the flood, the entire human race seemed to have agreed to perpetuate sin and to apply their great endowments of personality to evil purposes and evil indulgences, even though it grieved the great God whom they knew existed and had bestowed many benevolent kindnesses upon them. And certainly the only one indicated to be in a state of righteousness with surety was Noah, for we cannot be positive that even his family were wholeheartedly yielded to God. In the 11th chapter of Genesis, the first nine verses, after the flood, we notice that the new mass of men who had descended from Noah soon defied God in building the Tower of Babel to make a name for themselves. God had to confuse their language and scatter them so that they would not cooperate too closely in devising ways and means of rebellion against God. In the 12th chapter of Genesis, we see that God called Abraham, and certainly he was a minority so also with his early descendants. We come to the book of Numbers in the 14th chapter, and we notice that after God had shown his might and care in bringing several million children of Israel across the Red Sea and into the wilderness and had bestowed upon them his good law, most of them rebelled and had to be led in the wilderness until they died, and a new generation arose. In the first book of Samuel, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, we notice that Samuel had a heart for God in Israel's rejection and that God comforted him. Certainly the prophets had a great struggle as they represented God against the majority. In the first book of Kings, chapter 18, we read about Elijah as to how he was the lonely prophet of the Lord against 450 false prophets of Baal. As we come to Isaiah 53, we have an instance of how the prophets struggled endlessly to keep the nation Israel in the path of obedience and generally failed. And with Isaiah, he expressed himself with grief thus, 
Who hath believed our report? Even Israel was only a small part of the nations of the world. We come to Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, and we notice that the Old Testament closes with the mass of God's professed people asking in hardness of heart, Wherein have we wearied him? And as we come to the New Testament, we see that it opens with John the Baptist calling men to a new manner of life. Many heeded, but soon he was put to death. So there must have been a reaction against the light of God when it was revealed. In the fourth chapter of Luke, we notice verses 28 to 30 that the mass of men at Nazareth, where the Lord Jesus had been brought up and had testified concerning the things of God, were greatly enraged and sought to extinguish the light of the world and would have succeeded except for the restraining power of God. We shall have to conclude our remarks on this objection in our next. Our Heavenly Father, receive thanks abundantly for such a universal gospel, even though men reject for the most part thy loving, extended hands of mercy. Yet thou dost beseech men to repent, come by faith to Christ, be forgiven by thy grace. We pray that many may do so, and enter into the joy of thy heart in the happy life of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.